apostasy so that there was the need to bring these truths, truths that had already been delivered by other prophets, to bring them back to the forefront and to remind the people anew of those things that there and they had forgotten. And the result is that there were some who feared the Lord, some who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Some of them, not all of them, but there were some, a remnant of the people listened to the preaching of Malachi. They took his message seriously. They feared God. They turned from their sin and they trusted in the coming of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And in this way, there was a reformation among the people, right? Again, not among all the people, but among some of the people, there was a reformation in that they returned back to the straight ways of the Lord. This among the remnant. It says in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. This is what happened among the faithful. They returned to the ancient paths, to the good ways of the Lord, but not the wicked among them, not the rabble. They are the ones who say, We will not walk in the way of the Lord. They are the ones who said it is vain to serve God. They are the ones who said, what benefit do we get? What profit is it of serving the Lord and as walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? But not those who had faith, not the believing among them. They are the ones who said it is good to serve the Lord, that it is not vain to serve him, that there is great profit in following the ways of God. We are going to return to the ways. We are going to walk in the ancient paths and we will serve the Lord. Now, hopefully this is what describes us, that we are in this second group of people, those who have returned to the Lord, those who desire to keep and walk on the straight paths of the Lord. Now, the question before us today is how do we remain on that path, right? How is it that we keep from drifting away and falling into a state of apostasy like the nation of Israel had fallen? Right? How is it that those who have the word of God, right, those that it was delivered to, who had Moses as one of their prophets, who had men like David and Joshua, right, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these great godly men of God, these great prophets of God, how is it that they could fall so far short and be so far away from the path of the Lord? It's because they didn't remember the word of God. They were not quick to obey it, and they did not remember the word of the Lord. And they are like the church in Ephesus, described in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that they had abandoned their first love. So the Lord there tells them that they need to remember from where they have fallen, and they need to repent and do the works that they did at first. So for us, how do we keep from falling into this state? Right? Hopefully, Right? I believe that we are on the right path now. But will we be on that path 20 years from now? Will our church be on that path in 100 years from now? Right? Don't we want to stay on the path of the Lord? Don't we want to establish our families, our children, our grandchildren, our church? Don't we want to entrust those things to them and ensure that our children and grandchildren and our church continue walking in the ancient paths? So how do we make sure that this happens? And he tells us here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. So let's turn there and let's see again here. It's a short verse, but there's a lot to unpack here. There, he, he, he crams a lot in one little verse. 
Malachi 4.4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Here, the way that we stay on the straight paths of the Lord is by remembering, right? Remember, he says, the law of my servant Moses, right? Remember the law that I gave to Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. We have to remember the word of God. We have to remember what it teaches, the content that it teaches, the doctrines that it puts forward, the righteousness that it upholds for us. We have to remember by believing the doctrines that are taught in the Bible and living according to the righteous rules, the righteous precepts that are prescribed in the word of the Lord. Right? If a man is serving the Lord, this is because he knows the word of God. He has believed the word of God. He's obeying the word of God. He's living a righteous life. Well, if that is what you are doing, then don't depart from that. Continue doing the things that you've been doing. Do not forget the word of God. Keep the same doctrines in your mind and keep the same righteous life before you and day in and day out, continue walking in the paths of the Lord. And if we do this every single day, then we will not depart from the ancient paths. We will continue walking in the path of the Lord. Don't neglect the word of God, but daily remember what it teaches even growing more and more in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we are doing this, then we will not depart from the ways of God. For example, we read in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. We know from that passage we studied last week that the day of the Lord is coming. And when that day comes, God is going to set the arrogant and all evildoers, He's going to set them ablaze. But the Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing on its wings for those who fear the Lord. So what do we need to do then? In light of this truth, right? in light of what we learned last week, we need to remember these things so that we walk in the ways of God. Because if we forget it, if we forget that God is going to set all the arrogant and all evildoers ablaze, then we might fall in with evildoers because we're not thinking about the judgment that is going to come upon them. If we forget that there is a reward for the righteous, that Christ is going to save them, He's going to honor them, He's going to give them eternal glory, if these things are not on our mind, then we might conclude that it's vain to serve the Lord and we might not walk in the straight paths of the Lord. So what do we need to do? Every day we need to remember there is a day of judgment. It needs to be on our mind. It needs to be on our lips. We need to talk about it in our homes, with our wife, with our children, with our friends, with whomever we come into contact with. And by remembering it, we need to live according to its truthfulness, according to what it says. And if it is on our mind, then we will walk in the paths of righteousness. But if we forget it by neglecting it, Right By not thinking about these things, not meditating upon these things, then gradually what will happen to us? We'll begin to stray from the path. We'll begin to drift away day by day by day, and then one day we'll look up and we'll be completely apostate. And our church will be apostate. And our children will be pagans and heathens and unbelievers because we did not remember the word of God. But we forgot it and we turned away from the path. So if we are faithful to God, then remain faithful to Him. Do not forget the Word of God. 
It is the word of God that saved our souls. So don't forget it, but keep it on your mind, on your lips, talk about it, meditate upon it. May it be what drives us each and every day. Isn't that what we want? Right? Don't we want to be faithful to God? Not just for a day, not just for a year, but for the entirety of our life. Well, how are we going to be faithful to God if we do not remember the word of God? It's impossible. We must remember the word of Lord, of the Lord. We must be taught and we must remember what we are taught. We don't need a new word from God. We do not need new revelation from God. Some secret, hidden wisdom from God as so many people desire. Isn't this what many people are looking for today? They want a new word from God. They want secret, hidden wisdom from God. People who don't even read their Bibles. Right? You haven't even read what God has given to you yet, so why are you looking for something new? Shouldn't we desire to know what God has taught? We have the whole Bible before us, so let's master it. Let's set our mind upon the word of God. Let's consume the content of the Bible year after year after year and grow in our knowledge of the will of God and then remember the will of God each and every day so that we can do his will for the rest of our lives. And then teach our children, teach our grandchildren. If God blesses us with great-grandchildren, teach them as well. Anyone who will listen to us, let's teach them those things as well. Know the word of God. Remember the word of God for the sake of believing and obeying the word of God. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is what the apostle says in chapter 1 verse 22. James chapter 1 verse 22. says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Right? This is what we need to be like. The man who hears the word and does the word, doesn't forget what he heard. Right? The one who hears but doesn't do is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then he goes and he forgets what he looks like. That is a very foolish man. But we don't want to be that way. Also, Jude. Jude verse 17. Jude verse 17. Notice what the apostle says here. Jude verse 17. says, But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will come scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There, he tells them, you have to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? They told you that there are going to rise scoffers who are going to come in the last day following their own ungodly passions. And the purpose of them telling you this is for what? 
so that you can be on guard, so that you're warned, so that when they come in and you identify one of these people, you can have nothing to do with him. But if you don't keep this truth in your mind, you're going to let your guard down. You're going to be gullible. You're going to be naive. And you're going to be led astray by these ungodly people devoid of the Spirit. And they're going to lead you to hell and your family to hell as well. So what good is it for the apostles to predict this to you if you don't remember it? Meaning if you're not listening and applying and obeying and practicing what they tell you to practice. Also, while we're here, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says, This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Here, Peter is reminding them, this is the second time I'm writing to you. And in both of them, what is his point? What is he doing? He's reminding them. He's stirring up their mind by way of reminder. He's not teaching to them something new, something novel, something that no one has ever known before, but he's simply reminding them of what the prophets predicted, what the Lord Jesus predicted, and what the apostles predicted. That they need to be reminded that scoffers will come in the last day. Isn't that interesting? Both Jude and Peter are both warning us about what? Scoffers, false teachers. That will come in the last day. Though many believe there's hardly any false teachers today. Maybe one or two here and there, but not so dangerous and deadly. Yet the apostles thought it was very dangerous. And they're constantly reminding the church to remember these predictions that there will be many false prophets that will rise up. And you need to be aware of this so that you are not led astray by them. But if you're not remembering these predictions, then you're going to get duped. You're going to be deceived. You're going to be led astray. One last passage, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here the prophet Moses is teaching the same thing. So there is no contradiction between the old and new. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9. It says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children also. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven." Wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You have heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So there, again... Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And in forgetting them, you depart 
from the way of God, that these things are not in your heart and they are not in your mind. So these things, right, the word of God, the content of the word of God, the doctrines, the commandments, the statutes, the rules, the righteousness, they have to be on our mind, they have to be on our lips, they have to be in our homes, in our church, lest we forget the Lord and depart from his ways. And we have examples of this in the Bible, such as Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, In all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, why did they not know the Lord or the work he had done? Because it wasn't available to them? Because they couldn't have access to it? Because God did something for their fathers that he didn't do for them? No. It was all right there. They didn't want to know it. They intentionally wanted to forget the word of God so that they could do what? Sin against him so that they could live in sin. And this is what false teachers, this is why they want to rise up. They bring strange interpretations of the Bible that cause us to either lose our confidence in the true interpretation or to completely reject, forget, and repudiate the true interpretation of the Bible so that we live in sin instead of walking in the straight ways of God. We forget the true interpretation. And we can't do this. This is what has happened, for example, on the issue of evolution. When it was introduced into the church, it caused the churches to forget what they had believed for so many years, which is creationism, young earth creationism. This is what was commonly believed, commonly taught in the churches for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then evolution is brought into the church, and it causes the church to forget what they used to know, depart from the way, and hold to heresy and to false teaching. And this can happen on many other issues as well. So we have to remember, we must remember the word of God. Now here in Malachi 4.4, he specifically mentions the law of my servant Moses. We must remember the law of the servant of God who was called Moses. Moses was a true prophet of God. He was a faithful man of God. He was a slave or a servant in the household of God. He had a chief rank as a prophet of God in his household. And he was a good servant, a wise servant, a faithful servant of the Lord who discharged the word of God to the people faithfully. This is the scripture's testimony concerning the prophet Moses. Numbers chapter 12. This is God's own testimony of Moses to his critics. Did you know Moses had critics? Naysayers and critics that rose up against him, even from his own family that rose up against him. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. 
Now, I'll just point out there, notice, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. It doesn't say the Lord came down as a pillar of cloud, but he came down in a pillar of cloud. And who is this Lord who came down? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he came to the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. He said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And then he strikes Miriam with leprosy because of this. So God's own testimony is in defense of Moses. That Moses, even in terms of the prophets, has a special place. That God spoke to most of the prophets in riddles, in dreams, in visions, but not Moses. He spoke with Moses mouth to mouth. He spoke to him clearly and plainly. He was a friend of God, and he spoke to him in that way. That is the Lord's own testimony. Also, the New Testament gives to us a high commendation of the prophet Moses. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Here the apostle is contrasting Jesus with Moses, showing that Jesus does have greater glory than Moses because Moses wasn't the only begotten son from the Father full of grace and truth. Moses was a man. He was a man filled with the Spirit of God. He was a prophet of God, but he was a mere man, whereas Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. But even still, he does commend Moses as what? Faithful. He was a faithful servant in the house of God. And Moses never claimed to be anything other than a servant in the house of God. He knew his place and he performed his role accordingly. So God had a special relationship with Moses, right? Again, that even exceeded the other prophets. He was a faithful servant of God. So we know then that he discharged his duty well. So when Moses delivers the word of God to the people, we know that Moses, because he's faithful, did not alter it. He did not edit it. He did not refine God's word according to his own opinions and his own thoughts. But he simply faithfully delivered God's word to the people, right? Word for word. So that what they received from Moses was not a word from man, not a mixture of some God's word and some man's word, some God's thoughts and some Moses' thoughts, but rather it was completely and purely the word of God. Without any mixture of error, without any mixture of human fallibility, but it is instead the infallible, perfect word of God. 
This is what Moses gave to the people because he was a faithful servant in the household of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that this is the case with not only Moses, but all of the prophets and the apostles as well. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him uh, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophecy of Scripture doesn't come from the man's own interpretation, from the prophet's own interpretation. The law of Moses did not come from Moses' own interpretation, but rather it came as he spoke from God, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So Moses was not a master manipulator of men who duped and conned the people of Israel into following him, into giving him honor, into giving him glory. He was a servant of God who delivered God's word to them. Right? That's the key. Right? That's the important piece. It is God's word. It is not Moses' word. Though it is called the law of Moses, it did not originate with Moses. It originated with God. It is called the law of Moses because Moses was the mediator. Moses is the one that it was given to, and then he is the one that taught the people these truths. But the content did not come from Moses. The content came from God. Isn't that Malachi's own testimony? In Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. And here, when Malachi is writing this, it is God speaking through him in the first person. Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Right? Who commanded Moses at Horeb? Well, not Malachi. Malachi didn't even exist at that point. God is the one who commanded Moses at Horeb. This is the same as Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord by Malachi. So the law of Moses is the oracle of the word of the Lord by Moses. God was the author of the law of Moses. God is the one who revealed it to Moses, and then Moses is the one who taught the people. And when we're thinking about the one who revealed it to Moses, specifically in relation to the three persons of the Holy Trinity, which of the three appeared to Moses? Which of the three revealed himself to Moses? When Moses beheld the form of the Lord, when the Lord came down and spoke to Moses mouth to mouth in the tent of meeting, when Moses ascended to the mountain and spoke to the Lord, who was he speaking to? Who revealed himself to him on the mountain? John chapter 1. John chapter 1 
in verse 18 tells us who it was. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God the Father. So if anyone in the Old Testament sees God, who are they seeing? They're seeing the only God, right, who is at the Father's side or in the bosom of the Father. He is the one who reveals the Father. The Son always reveals the Father, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. That it was Christ appearing to Moses, appearing to later prophets as well. This is the one that they saw. He is the one that they conversed with. He is the one who appeared to them. So we can say then that the law of Moses, we could also call it the law of God, can we not? And then could we also not call it the law of Christ? The law of Moses is none other than the law of Christ. Because Christ is the one who delivered it to Moses on the mountain. So there's no contradiction between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. There's no contradiction between the Old Testament and between the New Testament. But rather, these are in perfect agreement and perfect harmony with one another. And anyone who seeks to make Moses contradict Christ or the content of the law of Moses as different than the content of the law of Christ, or Old Testament versus New Testament, prophets versus apostles, right? Red letters versus black letters, right? Whatever way people try to divide the Bible to make one more significant than another portion, this is blasphemy. It is blasphemy. It is dangerous. It leads to heresy, and we have to reject any of these types of things. Moses and Christ are not in contradiction. Moses and Christ are not enemies against one another. Moses and Christ are in perfect harmony, for it was Christ the Lord who commanded Moses what to write and what to say. This is what we saw Wednesday night in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. And our Lord Jesus Christ says, speaking of red letters, right? In John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Right? What is the assumption there? Moses and Jesus are teaching the same thing. They're proclaiming the same truths to the people. Also here we see in Malachi 4.4, it's called the law of Moses. Law of Moses. Law here is further defined later as statues and rules. Right? Laws, statues, rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Now apparently Malachi didn't get the memo about legalism, right? Because he uses three dirty words here. Law rules, commandment. But Malachi was no legalist. Malachi is teaching the way of God truly, right? The way of God truly. And when he says these words, law, rules, statutes, commandments, he's simply describing the entirety of the content of the first five books of the Bible, 
right? When we hear the word law, many times we immediately think in terms of specificity. We think in terms of commandments, like the Ten Commandments, and certainly the Ten Commandments are a part of the law of Moses. But many, when they hear law, that's all that they think of. A commandment that says, do not have any other gods before me. Right? Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? Do not worship an idol. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Right? Certainly, these are a part of the law of Moses, these commandments. But most people think exclusively of commandments, and then they conclude that the law of Moses is all about commandments, It's all about works-based salvation. It's all about your own performance, your own deeds, and what you are supposed to do. So they think that Moses taught salvation by works or salvation by law-keeping or commandment-keeping. But this is not the case at all. The term law of Moses is being used as a synonym for word of God. Law of Moses equals first five books of the Bible. All of it from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. It's just the first five books of the Bible, which is the Word of God. And there contained in the Law of Moses is every teaching necessary for a man to be made wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Every doctrine, every commandment needed so that we can be reconciled to God and that we can live a godly life, it's all found in the first five books of the Bible. Everything necessary for life and godliness is contained in the law of Moses. The law of Moses teaches not only the commandments of God, like the Ten Commandments, but also it teaches the gospel. It teaches the righteousness of God that is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take the apostles' word for it. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Notice here that the apostle, in teaching the righteousness based upon faith, who does he go back to? Who is his source? Who is his authority to teach the righteousness based upon faith in Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 10, verse 5. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, did Moses teach that? Yes, Moses did teach the righteousness based upon the law. Now, why did he teach the righteousness based upon the law? Did he give them the law of Moses and say, it's up to you, do the best that you can. If you do good enough, then you're going to go to heaven one day. Did Moses ever teach that to the people? Of course not. He taught them the righteousness based upon the law, right? That the person who does the commandment will live by them, not so that the people would go out and try to earn their own salvation, but rather to show them that they're in their sin, that there's nothing that they can do through their own works, through their own obedience to earn God's favor, that it is impossible in order to bring them under sin and under condemnation. Then notice verse 6. But the righteousness based upon faith says, now he's going to quote. You see that in your Bible, it's in quotation marks. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, bring Christ up from the dead. Now when he says the righteousness based upon faith, this is what it says, then he quotes. Who's he quoting from? He's quoting from Moses. 
That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Moses said, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then the apostle tells us, when Moses proclaimed that, what did he mean? He's giving us the interpretation. Don't say who will ascend into heaven. That is, who will bring Christ down out of heaven? Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, who will bring Christ up from the grave? Because what people want to say is, okay, yes, Moses, you're preaching to us the coming of the Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. But if we could see it with our own eyes, if you could bring Christ out of heaven and put him in before us, then we would believe in him. And if we could witness this resurrection with our own eyes, then we would believe it. He's saying, don't say those things. You don't need to see it because I'm telling you these things by the word of God. And that should be sufficient, right? To simply have the word of God among us is enough. And that's why he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Who said that to the people? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Moses said that to the people. He said, don't say these other things. Don't make these lame excuses for your lack of faith. But rather, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Meaning, I have taught you the word of God so faithfully. I have clearly instructed you in everything that you need to know for life and salvation what is lacking. You just need to believe. Nothing is lacking in terms of content. There's nothing lacking in terms of what you need to know. I've given you everything that you need. You just need to believe. And when Moses said, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, what is that word, according to the apostle? That is the word of faith that we proclaim. We being whom? The holy apostle. The word of faith that the apostle Paul proclaimed is the same word of faith that Moses proclaimed when he told the people, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Then what is that word of faith? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that him and Moses are teaching the same truth. They're preaching the same exact gospel, right? He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30 to prove that what he's teaching is the same as Moses, and that is found in the law of Moses. So the law of Moses doesn't just teach the righteousness based upon the law, but it also teaches the righteousness based upon faith in Jesus Christ. Also, how about Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4. When the apostle is teaching the blessings of the one that God counts righteous apart from works, who does he quote in order to establish the legitimacy of this statement, right? That's what he's doing. That's why he's quoting from the Old Testament. The New Testament apostles quote the Old Testament not because they're introducing new novel interpretations that no one knew before, but rather they're quoting it to show that what we're teaching is not in contradiction to the prophets. We're teaching the exact same truths that the prophets taught. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And who is the one that said that? That's Moses. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So Moses taught that Abraham was declared righteous or justified, not by his works, but by faith. He believed God, and then God counted it to him as righteousness. Also, what about Genesis chapter 3? What about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Who wrote this? And is this not in the law of Moses? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is Moses predicting here? The coming of Christ. And that the Christ who will come from the woman, he's also teaching virgin birth here, that he will be the one who will undo and overthrow what Satan brought into the world through his temptation and what Adam brought into the world through his sin. Through his, and it will be through his death and through his resurrection. So that's law of Moses as well. What about Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter 22, isn't this in the law of Moses? Well, what does it teach? Genesis 22, verse 9. This is when the Lord commands Abraham to go and take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. And then, verse 9. says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be provided? The sacrifice. The sacrifice that will take away our sins. The sacrifice who will stand in our place. Now, is this teaching salvation by works? No way anyone could read this objectively and think, that this is teaching salvation by works. No one with a right mind could say that. Yet it's taught in the law of Moses, and all these things are taught before the giving of the Ten Commandments. So how could the Ten Commandments overthrow the righteousness based upon faith that was already established in Abraham? And how could Abraham be saved by faith, but then his descendants be saved by works? It's absurd. It is utterly absurd that anyone would think or believe or teach that the Old Testament, and specifically the law of Moses, teaches salvation by works. No way, Jose. So, the law of Moses does not mean salvation by works in contrast to the law of Christ, which means salvation by grace through faith. But rather, the law of Moses taught salvation by faith through Christ who was to come who would be delivered up for their trespasses and raised for their justification. P Moses taught the people to put their hope in the coming Christ, 
right? Not in their own works and not in their obedience to the law. And he told them in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that God would raise up another prophet like him from among their brothers. And he's the one that they should listen to, that there would be a greater prophet than Moses who would come. Well, how can someone be a greater prophet than Moses if Moses is the chief servant in the household of God? Only if he's a son. He's the son of God in power. That's Hebrews chapter 3, as we read earlier. So, all to say, Moses taught the gospel of Jesus Christ as the basis for one's justification. And then, as a result of their being justified, he taught them how to live a life pleasing to God by obeying God and living a godly life. Namely, everything needed for life and godliness is contained, it's found, in what is called the law of Moses. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And these things are so necessary for us to understand, which is why we spend a lot of time talking about them. Because there's some real harebrained ideas out there, some bad ones that are floating around in the churches that many people assume, many people believe, And I'm confident that we've heard all these things many times throughout our life. And we have to overcome that, right? It takes many years to overcome those types of things. And the more we hear it, the more confidence we have in what the Bible actually teaches. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there he tells them to remember the sacred writings, right? The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And when the Apostle Paul writes this, the New Testament is not complete yet. When the Apostle Paul is referring to is Timothy's childhood, growing up in the household with his mother and grandmother, and likely none of the New Testament had been written whenever he was a child. So where are the sacred writings? What sacred writings are they teaching him that will make him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? It's the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. That's the purpose of all of the sacred writings, is to make a man wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Another thing that needs to be addressed. See, I told you, it's a short verse, but there's a lot to say, a lot to say. Why does he only say the law of Moses? Why does Malachi tell the people, remember the law of Moses, but says nothing of the prophets, Nothing of the Psalms, nothing of the wisdom literature. Right? He doesn't mean any, mention any book or any prophet after Moses. So he doesn't say, remember the law of Moses, and remember the Psalms of David, and remember the writings of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the other prophets. Why is it that only Moses is mentioned? And this is because Malachi has a proper understanding of Scripture, and he knows how to interpret Scripture correctly. He is establishing here implicitly the harmony and the unity of all of the Bible because he understands and is communicating that Moses is the foundation of the Bible. Right? Isn't that true? He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He is the first 
writing prophet who delivered to us the first five books of the Bible. And then everything that comes after Moses is simply building upon the foundation that God has already laid through his servant Moses. So when he calls their attention explicitly to Moses, he is at the same time implicitly calling their attention to everything that's built upon the foundation of Moses, which is what? The rest of the Bible, right? The rest of the Bible, the rest of the prophets. So Malachi is teaching the harmony of Scripture, namely that the later prophets are not overthrowing what, over, what came before them, but they are simply reiterating, readdressing, restating, providing further clarity and further explanation of what came before them. And then all of them ultimately go back to the word of the Lord delivered by God to his servant Moses the prophet. So when Malachi calls the people to remember the law of Moses, he is calling them to remember Moses and then to remember all the prophets who in one way or another are explaining Moses because this is what the other prophets are doing. Malachi is the last of the writing prophets of the Old Testament, about a thousand years after the time of Moses. That also shows us something. Do they think the word of God gets old and outdated? Isn't a thousand years a long period of time? Isn't culture, doesn't it change over time? But he understands that what Moses wrote a thousand years before is still pertinent, still applicable to the lives of the people in his own day. Well, isn't it true in our day as well? Though we may be 3,000 years from the time of Moses, over 3,000 years, what he wrote is still applicable today. So he's calling them to remember Moses. He's the last of the writing prophets, but he's telling his contemporaries, his audience, those of his own generation, that they need to remember not only Moses, they also need to remember the other prophets as well. And for us, He's calling us to remember not only Moses and not only the prophets, but also the holy apostles who will come after him because, again, what the apostles are teaching is not contradictory to Moses, but is still explaining, clarifying, providing more proof of the doctrines that were already taught and laid down by Moses. So all of the scripture then is in one way or another interpreting the law of Moses. Because as we stated earlier, every doctrine, every practice needed for life and godliness was introduced in the law of Moses. The prophets and the apostles are giving further clarity and explanation of the doctrines established by God through Moses. Now we might say, well then, why do we need the rest of the Bible? Well, don't we need to be told a hundred different times before it gets through our thick heads? Isn't that the case? Don't we have to do that with our children? It's not enough to tell them once. You have to tell them over and over and over again. We repeat the same things over and over in order to train them. And this is what God has done as well. He's given us all of the word of God to explain these things. So the church or the true Israel of God, the body of believers, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The church or the body of believers is built upon this foundation. The apostles and the prophets. And underlaying the apostles and prophets is the prophet Moses. And the cornerstone, the centerpiece of everything that Moses, the prophets, and the apostles taught is who? Is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, let me show you an example of what I mean by something introduced in the law of Moses and then giving further clarification as the Bible goes on. Exodus 25, or not Exodus, Genesis. Genesis 25, and this one we'll know because the prophet that further clarifies this is Malachi. And then the apostle who further clarifies is in the book of Romans, which we just finished, you know, not too long ago. Okay, Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Right? The children are struggling within her, and this is not just a common movement of a baby, but she understands by the Holy Spirit that this is significant. Something significant is taking place inside of her concerning these two children that are in her womb. So she goes to the Lord to inquire of God to find out what is going on. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So here we have this statement from the Lord to her concerning these two children, and the destiny, the eternal destiny of the two children, right? That they are going to be at odds. They are going to be at enmity with one another. They're going to be divided against one another, right? Not just in terms of the physical nations that come from them, but ultimately in terms of the righteous versus the wicked. And the older will serve the younger. The younger one is going to have prominence and preeminence over the older one, ultimately. He's going to triumph over him. Then Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Notice here, Malachi is bringing this forward and interpreting what was delivered by Moses in Genesis chapter 25. Malachi 1 verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Isn't that true? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? We just read that in Genesis 25. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So there, Malachi is bringing this forward. Esau and Jacob are brothers, yet God loved Jacob but hated Esau. And when he's saying that, he's not meaning just in terms of Esau got a barren land and Jacob got a good fertile land, but ultimately he means it in what way? 
Esau is going to go to hell, right? He's going to be called the wicked country and the people that the Lord is indignant with forever. God gave Jacob salvation, but he did not give salvation to Esau. And what is this based upon? Well, that's Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, now the Apostle Paul brings both of these passages together at one time. And again, what he's stating here is it's not unknown before this. It's obvious that this is the case. Why is it that Jacob was preferred over Esau? Why did the older one have to serve the younger? What's it based upon? Well, it took place in the womb before they were born, so it cannot be based upon anything that they had done, either good or bad. It has to be based upon what? God's purpose. God's purpose, his declaration. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the purpose was to confirm God's purpose of election. The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So there you have it established in Moses, it reiterated in Malachi, and further reiterated in Romans chapter 9, but all three are teaching the same content. They're all teaching the same truth. It's just reiterated, it's re-explained, it's given more clarity, more substance as it goes along. Okay, back to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statute and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So again, he calls us to remember the law of the servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Here, he says it's given for all Israel. And this is why all Israel must remember the law of God the servant of, uh, through the servant Moses. So then we have to ask, who is Israel? Right, who is Israel? To whom did God give the law of Moses? Well, certainly... He means it of the nation Israel, that they were present at Horeb. This is the nation that was there when God gave the law of Moses. So it was given to them. It wasn't given to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. It wasn't given to any other nation. It was only given to them. And when the word of God is given to a person, to a family, to a nation, it is for their benefit so that they might listen to it, so that they might obey it and they might believe it, what has been spoken to them from the word of God. This is as it says in Psalm 147, that the law was given exclusively in this way to Israel and not to any other nation. Psalm 147 verse 19 says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. 
He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So certainly, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation delivered from Egypt by God through the ministry of Moses, this is the nation God spoke to at Horeb, and this is the nation that Malachi is also addressing, the children of Israel. Whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, God has spoken to them through the law of Moses, and they need to know what it says, they need to repent of their sins, and they need to believe it. This is as it says in Romans 3 verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with God's oracles. But is the law of Moses only exclusively for the physical descendants of Abraham? Is it exclusively for the nation of Israel? Because if so, then it has no bearing upon us because none of us are Jews. I'm not a Jew. I don't, I don't know if any of you are, but at least I'm not, and I assume because of your whiteness that most of you are not Jews either. So are we obligated to remember the law of God's servant Moses? Now, I say this because there are naysayers and critics out there who say that the law of Moses no longer applies to the new covenant Christians, that it has no bearing upon us. The law of Moses was just for the physical nation of Israel. It is a physical law for a physical people, but the church is not a physical people. The church is a spiritual people, so the church needs a new law, a spiritual law, the law of Christ. This is what they do. They put the law of Moses in contradiction to the law of Christ. So they will say, the law of Moses is not for the new covenant era. It's not for the church. It's only for Israel. And therefore, we don't have to keep it. We don't have to obey it. And in this way, they make a distinction, not only between Moses and Christ, but also between Israel and the church that these are two distinct, separate groups of people. God dealt in one way with Israel. He gave one law for Israel, the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, and then God deals in a different way with the church. They are a separate group of people, and they receive a superior law, the law of Christ or the law of liberty. Just do whatever you want. Okay, so when God gave the law to Israel at Horeb, was it intended merely exclusively for the physical nation of Israel? Now, again, central to this question is, what does it mean to be an Israelite? Who is an Israelite? Who is a Jew? Can an Israelite be more, can it primarily be more than a physical descendant of Abraham? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is yes. Galatians chapter 3. Actually, when we hear this word, this should be what's at the forefront of our mind. Why would we have something physical at the forefront of our mind when we're reading the Bible? When God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And we know that God teaches the spiritual by way of the physical. So why would we think that it's only dealing with a physical reality? It doesn't make any sense. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those of faith, he says, are sons of Abraham. Also, 26, chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Well, who belongs to Christ? Not every physical descendant of Abraham. Right? We just read that in Romans chapter 9. We just read that in Genesis chapter 25. Wasn't Jacob and Esau, weren't they both equally related to Abraham? But God loved one and he hated the other one. Jacob was a man of faith, but Esau was an unbeliever. Also, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 teaches this as well. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Again, we're pointing these out to show you that I'm not a, I'm not a crazy man when I'm saying these things. This is what the apostles teach. And their interpretation is the best interpretation of the Old Testament. So those who would contradict them are contradicting the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 2.25, circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right there, clearly he states it. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, right? That's what matters, is the inward reality. And he's not saying that after the day of Pentecost. This has always been the case, that what matters is the inward reality. And where was that truth so clearly taught? Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So a true Jew, a true Israelite, is a spiritual reality. Whether he is a physical descendant of Abraham or whether he is a Gentile. right? A physical Jew who does not have true faith and does not possess the Spirit of Christ, is not a true Jew. And a Gentile who does have true faith, and who does have the Spirit of Christ, he is a true Jew. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Jew or Gentile doesn't mean anything. All that matters is being born again. Being born of the Spirit of God, all that matters is a new creation. This is as Jesus confirms in John 1.47, when he sees Nathanael, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. That you are a true Israelite, an Israelite indeed. Not a fake one, a true one. Because of why? In you there is no guile. Not meaning that his having no deceit in him was the basis of his becoming a true Israelite, but it's the evidence that he is a true Israelite because he's not a man of deceit. And also in Revelation chapter 2, when Christ is speaking to the church there, he calls the Jews a synagogue of Satan. 
And he says, they call themselves Jews, but what? But they are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. So then, if we have been born of the Spirit, right? if we have faith in Christ, then we are descendants of Abraham, we are true Israelites, we are true Jews, we are the children of God. So do we need to remember the law of God's servant Moses? And the answer is yes. We need to read it, we need to know it, we need to believe it, we need to obey it. And not only the law of Moses, but the prophets and the apostles as well. Because we are included in all Israel. It is for us as well. So what should we do? If we do not want to stray from the path, then we need to remember the word of God. From Moses all the way through the prophets and all the way through the apostles. Read the Bible over and over and over again. Believe every word that it says. Obey every injunction that it gives. And do this day in and day out for the rest of your life. This is how we walk in faithfulness before the Lord. By remembering the law of God's servant Moses. But how will we remember it if we don't know it in the first place? We're not going to remember it if we don't know it. We have to know it, and then we have to remember it. So let us then commit our lives to knowing the word of the Lord, knowing that it is the word of God that will save our souls. It will save our souls. It will sanctify us. It will progress us in righteousness. Every good thing comes from God. And for us, everything that we need for life and for godliness is contained, it is found in the word of God. And this is what we need more than anything else in this life, more than our daily bread, right? Do not labor for the food that perishes, Jesus says. We need the bread that comes from heaven, the bread of life, and that bread of life is given to us in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us, Lord, your holy word, that, Lord, you have spoken to us. Lord, you didn't leave us in darkness, Lord, as we deserved, but instead you have shown your light upon us. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in the word of God. Lord, you have shown us that you are a holy and a righteous God. Lord, you have shown us that we are sinners before you. Lord, completely bereft of any good. Lord, of any righteousness. Lord, that we have nothing by which to commend ourselves before you. Lord, you have shown us that there is only one way that we can be reconciled to you. This is through your son, Jesus Christ, who you have given as a sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, you have revealed to us that through faith in his name and repentance towards you, Lord, all of our sins can be forgiven. And Lord, you have shown us how it is that we should live before you. Lord, walking before you in uprightness, in godliness, all the days of our life. Lord, everything we need for life and godliness Everything needed so that the man of God, Lord, the woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every single good work is found in your word. Lord, what is often lacking, Lord, is our own knowledge of it. And Lord, our lack of desire to read it, Lord, to know it. And that, Lord, we are quick to forget it. But Lord, we pray that you would give us a love for your word. Lord, that we would desire it more than we do our daily bread. Lord, that it would be more precious to us than gold or silver. 
Lord, that we would want it above all things. And that, Lord, we would search the Scriptures daily. Lord, that we might gaze upon the glory of Christ. That, Lord, we might know your will so that we can do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would establish us in the truth of your word. Lord, that all the doctrines, that we would believe them. Lord, that we would want to keep every one of your commandments. And that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not forget. Lord, to not be distracted. Lord, as we go out into this world, there are so many things that seek to gain our attention. Lord, to take us away from the ancient paths. But Lord, we pray that we would have, Lord, a sincere mind and an unwavering devotion. That we would keep our faces fixed like flint toward the kingdom of God. And that, Lord, we would walk in the pathway of your commandments. That your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, to guide us as we go through our sojourning on this earth. So, Lord, may we never forget, Lord, your word that you have given. And, Lord, we thank you for all of your precepts. And, Lord, may they be wonderful to our sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.